Hi, it's Susan, and I'm an expert in helping musicians to have better relationships with themselves and with the world. This episode, we get really deep into the struggle of finding and redefining yourself with Paul Brookweens. We talk about staying curious, moving on when you lose interest, and the liberation that comes from finding your purpose. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode of the Change Your Tune podcast. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge, and I'm really delighted today to welcome our guest, Paul Brookweens, Private Wealth Manager. Paul, good good morning, good evening to you. <laughs> thank you, Susan, and uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, where are you, Where physically, where are you today, Paul? Uh, physically, I'm in my office in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, uh, and... I've been working in my office only for about the past month, as everyone is feeling during COVID. We got lucky. I got to come back for a bit, but it's only two days a week, and I'm at home most of the other time, uh, sometimes trying to get things done with two kids around. I think I think that's all of us. Uh, we've all seen more of people's naked children and cats in bedrooms than we ever thought we would in a professional working environment. Um, Paul, can you tell us about your work as a private wealth manager? What does that involve? Sure. Um, I'm essentially the tip of the spear. We do a lot of comprehensive and integrated wealth planning on behalf of uh, people we would like to call our clients, uh, people that I like to call my friends. Uh, and typically from a tip of a spear point of view, I ask a lot of questions. Uh, I know them quite well. Uh, and if they have engaged with us, uh, then we are doing work for them. And so my role is to ask the right questions, collect the right information, do some of that work, rely a lot on the team that we have here to help me do the work on behalf of our clientele. Uh, so it's, you, you're uh, helping people's dreams come true. Helping people's dreams come true uh, is a very good way to put it, but uh, essentially I'm having good conversations all the time to make sure that my clients are on the right path at all times. And I think that's a skill. There's actually a lot of musicians uh, we've had on this podcast actually who's, who the, the task that they do is listen um, or the skills. So they do listen, ask good questions to uh, foster, foster a trusting connection with someone else to try and understand their needs and then create solutions to that. Because um, we've had tech developers, we've had um, digital strategy analysts, we've had patent lawyers, uh, and it all sort of seems to come down fundamentally to this ability to be emotionally available uh, to someone else and and stay curious through a conversation. Absolutely. That's uh, bang on. And I, I forgot to mention this. We are also a portfolio manager. Uh, we offer those services as well. Great. So you, um, thank you. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, before we hit record, we did say there was much, much uh, confidentiality and discretion required so that you've probably, probably answered the question enough <laughs> for this discussion. Um, but this, this work that you do now is not what you've always done. You, you're a trained musician. So um, take us back to the very beginning and step us all and take as long as you want, step us all the way through to how did you go from there to here? Well, I grew up in Morden, Manitoba, which is a small town, and it's a part of what we call the Bible Belt here in Manitoba. Uh, and I grew up in a Mennonite household. Uh, and in that Mennonite household, my dad uh, was a business person, and my mom was the musician. Uh, and throughout life, 
calls very important. Uh, when we went to church every Sunday morning, we would sing in four-part harmony from what is lovingly known as the Green Hymnal. And you just learned how to do that as a kid. And so we would have my grandpa and my grandma on the right. Uh, there's four kids in the family. And then my mom and dad were there as well. Sometimes they were involved in the choir. Sometimes they weren't. And it was just a way of life. It was something you did every single Sunday. And then that got brought home as well. So it was something we would do around the Christmas tree at Christmas time is sing in four-part harmony because we had enough voices to do it. Uh, fast forward quite a bit to when I was 18 and making a decision about what I wanted to do with my life after high school. And I decided at that time because I was training to be a badminton player of all things. I sat down with my dad and we had a very good discussion about it. And it turns out that maybe I didn't want to be a full-time badminton player. Uh, maybe I wanted to attend university. So I attended university, but I did not attend for music. I attended for business. First year was engineering, actually. And I really, my marks reflected how interested I was in engineering. My dad is an engineer by trade. Uh, then the second year, I took some general courses, and the third year, I went into business school. My dad is also an accountant by trade, and so I pursued his background uh, through being an accounting major. By the time I was done my business degree, I realized very strongly that I did not want to be an accountant, and the only thing I could do with that accounting degree to have gainful employment based on accounting was be a bookkeeper. And I had already been a bookkeeper for about three years as a part-time job. And I realized it uh, wasn't really that interesting to me. And so where do you think I ended up? Well, I auditioned for the School of Music at the University of Manitoba. And the reason I auditioned was I had had a couple of opera roles in a, a scene program that they had put on for a number of years. And I just so happened to do that while I was going to business school. And I had got one lead role when I was in business school. And of course, it made me feel good. I had a lead role. I wasn't even in the school of music. And I thought, why don't I do this? Like my mom was a musician. Uh, so why don't I follow, follow that, not knowing how passionate I would be about it. And there I ended up at the School of Music, and I was an older student entering compared to many of the other students. So I was 23 at the time I entered, and everyone else is 18 or 19. Uh, and that meant some good things because I got lead roles still. And so again, a more mature voice entering the School of Music, had the opportunity to star in lead roles. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. There, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's how I really got to the musician side, and I ended up graduating from the School of Music with a major in vocal operatic performance. I'm I'm really fascinated, uh, Paul, and I think it will probably this will probably be a theme that's coming up. Is that I think a phrase that you said three times already was. Well, I did a thing, but it really wasn't interesting to me. Uh, and I'm so 
along the lines of of being self-aware enough to know that you're not invested in the thing that you're currently doing because that's that's a pretty advanced skill for a lot of people right it's like groundhog day and there's very little metacognition or insight into the inner life that they're having whether that's inside their heart or their stomach or their mind um but you seem to have had that at a very early age because sort of accounting was not interesting to me engineering was not interesting to me um but let's keep going and we'll see how this goes so um you've had a year of engine elite level elite level performer already in badminton so discipline and rigor and training and learning engineering and business that's the you know the academic and the sort of uh different part of the brain back into music what what happened when you graduated yeah uh yeah what was the experience what came next uh great question uh so i graduated in 2007 and the year before my spouse and i were married and so she was also a or is also a graduate of of the university of manitoba with a post baccalaureate as well as a master's and her name is Don Brooke Means. We took on each other's names. And at the time when you're both students, it was really tough to understand what was next. Like getting out of university, even business degree, getting out of university with a business degree and a music degree was still like, what next? There was no training for the real world there was no job lined up for you coming out of music school unless you chose to be an educator, which I taught a couple times one-on-one and I chose very adamantly not to be a music teacher. And I thought I would be a performer. Like you just aren't aware that even though people are telling you it's very hard to make that path work and it's very hard to be a successful singer, bass singer you just think it's going to be you and it's interesting because you said like I have this this perception and I've been able to change and that has been a theme throughout my life even after music like the, the theme of change has happened a lot for me even at that I thought at that point I had landed in the place I was meant to be and that was uh operatic singer and I remember specifically, I only applied for one master's program uh, because maybe I was um, a bit arrogant at the time that I just thought I would get in. You know, I had had the opportunity to get lead roles in multiple operas with uh, small companies in Manitoba, not never with Manitoba Opera, which is the, the like professional opera company here in Manitoba. But I thought I had done enough that, you know, I, I would be getting these roles and they beyond the smaller companies, they just never materialized. I auditioned for a master music in Toronto, which I did not get into. And I felt at the time that Toronto was the place to go. So I only auditioned there. Uh, and that was in 2007. And in 2009, I went to my final summer program called Opera Nuova, and I had the chance to sing uh, the lead role, and I had the chance to cover a role in uh, Cenerentola, 
the role of Dandini. And I had learned it extraordinarily well, but unfortunately, so had the other two people that were actually singing the role. And I, fortunately, actually, I can still call them people that I associate very well with, and uh, one of them's in a hockey with me and uh, all those things. But what was apparent to me at the age of 29 at that point, that's how old it was, was I was singing and covering for a 24-year-old and a 19-year-old, I want to say at that point. And these were two very good singers, uh, if not better than me already at that point, at least in my regard, they were on par with me. And at the age of 29, and you think that age significantly matters in that realm, uh, that's when what next really struck me. So it took about a year and a half after university for that what next to be like, whoa, what is next? And I think that that really opened up my eyes to make me aware that maybe this isn't going to work. I think, Paul, you've also, thank you for sharing, because this is starting to get into the stuff that's really, <laughs> this is all the good stuff that's never on LinkedIn, which is what this podcast is about. It's like pulling back those LinkedIn um, jumps between jobs and trying to understand what happened. But the the point that you, you're getting at here with, with not only what you were thinking about yourself at being a, a different kind of student who's a bit older because you've done other stuff that all of which you bring to your artistry is there's a real fetish around age and this young artists, emerging conductors, developing performers where everything, it seems to be at the age of 30 or 36, apparently it's like a well and the talent has run dry. Um, and I think that just all comes down to the fact that the, they've stuck a number on a funding application, got the funding and now they've, they've got this set of handcuffs to deal with. It's absolutely garbage. Um, and But we see that early on and I think it sets up this internal dialogue of if I haven't, if I haven't achieved it by this point, um, I'm, I'm not eligible for these summer programs or, or there's because all of the development, talent development money, I haven't seen, uh, the very little of it I've seen hasn't had an age number attached to it. Um, so I can understand why at that age with us, you were, I mean, you were already an adult when you went into that master's degree. So I think there's also that um, both not only the, the, all oh, the sector is set up only to support people who are younger than I already am right now. I'm, I'm going to age out of being eligible. They've got more availability of their life that's just centred around them to spend. I have a spouse and there's probably other things on the way. So also my life is set up to change quite soon and theirs isn't. They've got this runway ahead to invest just in themselves and their development. Um, so, yeah, it's completely understandable that that, that that where you were at that point and just just a point of clarity uh, i have two bachelor degrees so i got my bachelor of commerce and then a bachelor of music and i had auditioned for the masters that i didn't get into so this this what next is really interesting because that's it's so hard and <laughs> Yeah, go. And this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Go at it, the, please. The what next is so difficult. Uh, even with a business degree, 
and a music degree, I was fortunate to have a friend that, a friend of my wife's that worked in commercial banking and said, hey, there's this position open at TD Bank. Uh, TD Bank is a big bank here in Canada. And I decided to apply for it because you know, at that point, in, in and around that point when I had said, I, I have to make a change. And of course, Don and I had stations all along, like, when do you make that change? When do you stop pursuing and start doing something else? And that opportunity came up and I just decided that it was too good to not apply. And I applied and I had the interviews and I got the job. Uh, and all of a sudden here is someone who's used to not a nine to five, has never been used to a nine to five in their entire life, being in a 7.30 to 5.30 role. And the money's good. And you think that that will solve everything, but it doesn't. It was really difficult to come to terms with making that whole scale change. Because I think in my heart of hearts, I was still a performer. And the reality of the situation had not caught up with me, even though I had technically left the performing life behind to get this nine to five that paid really well. The, the reality was still way behind. Like I, I just didn't believe it. I, I perhaps thought I would always go back, even though I knew I wouldn't. I always thought I would. And so, yeah, there was no skill set to pull from to understand how to change from pursuing being a full-time performer to being in the workforce, the full-time workforce. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's exactly what this podcast is about to help to give people who have changed an opportunity to speak with great honesty about about that it's almost like a counseling experience to talk to someone who really understands and help others to see that you have we have such great value and expertise and skills and the sector try wants to make us believe that it's only useful in a very small amount of um, ways to express that and that's not true and I think it was really interesting the point you're talking about um, the the when to change because we're sort of set up with this notion of the struggling this ridiculous notion of the struggling artist, um, and there's a lot of it may not have been your experience because you didn't do an undergraduate degree but there's a lot of I call it competitive suffering. <laughs> You're only bleeding because you practiced seven hours of Rachmaninoff on the piano. Uh, my eyeballs broke because I practiced 11 hours. And this is whole the, the competitive suffering of the practice room life is the way of music schools. And so there's this, uh, this kind of cultural construct of, oh, being an artist means starving, which is rubbish. There's the systemic construct of um, he who breaks themselves most in the practice room wins in the music school and so we're set up we're set up normalizing suffering so what usually happens when the whole when people change thing kind of the psychological perspective on that is when the suffering becomes too great 
right? So normal people would have realised, oh, I've actually moved from unhappy and unsatisfied to suffering now. So now's the time to change and they're able to see that gear shift. But we've been suffering for years. Um, so we don't, we're not able to understand that we're really suffering because it's just normalised. And so I think that's that's the why it's really hard because we, we've normalised suffering and we're not able to disentangle that from the kind of the normal life things of being unhappy and unfulfilled. I don't know, is this, is this kind of where you were as well? The suffering point, it's hard for me to say that that's where I was because I enjoyed it so much. I was much more passion. I loved being on stage, but really why I loved it was the process of getting there. And then at the end of the day, everyone's standing up, they're clapping if you've done a good job. And that, what got me so excited about that wasn't necessarily because I was being entirely fulfilled. It was because I was helping the people what they do that and they had come to enjoy themselves and to have value for the money that they had paid to be there and so their clapping and their smiling face was for them and I love that but I didn't realize that that's what I loved and that that's where a part of my struggle came from when it came to progressing into the working world and finding what the right fit was. I could not figure that out and I was not self-aware enough to understand how to get there. And um, somewhat not ironically at all, the thing that you loved about music, which is exactly what you're doing right now, it's it's exactly the same thing you people come they want to exchange their you've created value they're looking to have a problem solved so it's the same reason we use music music there's a job to be done and it might be it's music for me is it's escapism or it's uh, transcendence but there's a job that it serves in the life of the audience member so um that's what you're doing on stage. And then they come and they have that, that job is fulfilled and they acknowledge your contribution. And that's exactly what you're doing right now. So well, our audience, the listeners can't see this, but you're nodding your head like crazy. Have, is this right? Have you come to realise this is what you're doing? Yeah. So here's a bit of a tangent. And I think this is what you also want to talk about. When I was a commercial banker, I could not wrap my head around 80% of why I was there. I felt like most people could do that role because yes, it was client facing and yes, the clients needed me, but they didn't need me. They needed the bank. They needed the bank to be able to fulfill their needs uh, or borrowing needs. I, I was lending them or TD was lending them the money. And there were multiple different check boxes that I had to fulfill to meet my goals for the year because that's what happens in the corporate world is you have to meet your goals and a lot of those goals and those check marks in my opinion had nothing to do with my role and here you are having to fill those regardless of how you feel about them and i couldn't 
wrap my head around it. And so I applied for a different job at a different commercial bank because I thought it was the commercial bank. So I, I got the other job at a different commercial bank. It was a local credit union. And I went there and very nice people, a bit better of an atmosphere. But at the end of the day, when push came to shove, it was very similar. And I thought, you know what, I'll start walking to work every day because maybe it's lack of exercise. Like maybe I'm feeling this way because I'm not getting enough exercise. That wasn't it. So I decided to meditate uh, for five to 10 minutes every single morning. So I would get up, meditate on the side of the bed. That wasn't necessarily it. I thought I was missing another piece. So I did the five minute journal and people might know this, but you essentially write down the things at the end of the day that you're grateful for. And in the morning when you wake up, I forget exactly what it is that you're writing down, but there's there's five minutes of work. It's all in a positive vein. So I was doing that. I was meditating. I was walking to work. I was walking back from work. And I just couldn't get out of that funk that I was in. And so another change was needed. And you've mentioned this. I, I seem to be able to make change. And I do. I would say in my entire world, my friends will always joke around with me and they'll come up to me every time I see them and they'll say, Paul, do you have a new job yet? Because I'm not afraid to make a change. And so I made a change to be a business development executive, I believe was the name of the title at a currency risk management firm that was on the seventh floor of the Richardson building. And lo and behold, I still work on the seventh floor of the Richardson building, but it is not for the currency risk manager. But what that opened my eyes to, along with a friend and mentor who encouraged me along the way, it opened my eyes to the fact that I am much more people facing than I ever thought I was. I always thought I would be that, you know, accountant, but that's why I went to accounting school because I thought, you know, I'd stick my head in a book and I really like sticking my head in that book. And I didn't. And I didn't think that was because I was a people person. I just thought it was because, oh, I need to maybe adjust to finance instead of accounting and I'll, then I'll stick my head in the book. When it came down to it, I went through an exercise through a company called Strategic Coach here in Canada. All it was, was I bought a book. I I never really engaged with them, uh, but I bought their book because another mentor of mine encouraged me to buy the book. And it was the revelation that I needed because I was that guy. Like I said, I would meditate. I would exercise. I would do the five minute journal. I would read business books incessantly. I would do all that. And at the end of the day, I was missing what really mattered to me. And so when I went through this strategic exercise, what it essentially showed me to do is reach out to the people in my life, 15 to 20 of them. They're either business associates or friends or family and ask them, what is my unique ability? So nothing to do with what I thought it was, everything to do with what everyone else that I trusted thought my unique ability was. And they sent it back to me. Some people sent back 10, some people sent back three. 
Uh, some of them really good feedback, some of them not as great feedback, but it didn't matter. Through that feedback, I combined all those skills that they said I was good at. And then I went through doing the cold index. And for anyone who's done that, it essentially showed me how I typically work and perhaps the, the things I could work on to work better and more in line with who I am. And then the Gallup Strength Finder. And the Gallup Strength Finder was very much of a, this is who you are as a person and these are the things you care about. And I can't remember the four categories exactly, but I know there's a relationship category, a sensory category, a execution category, and a strategy category. And there's 30 skills or something of the sort. And here's the guy who thinks that strategy is going to be like right up there in the list. Strategy didn't show up anywhere in my top 10, not even in the top 10. My top 10 was all about sensory and relationship. And sensory was actually the three of the top five, a relationship or the other two. And take those from Gallup Strength Finder, Colby A Index, all the feedback you've gotten from the people around you, and you sort of combine them. You combine them into 10 paragraph statements, and then you combine that 10 into one, and then you pare down that one into a very short statement. And like I mentioned, there's a, a, one of my mentors, a gentleman here in the city uh, who helped me because he had been through this program and he was close to retirement. He just helped me out of the graciousness of his heart to figure this all out at the end because I couldn't quite get there. And my statement came down to, I'm an impactful communicator with a passion for helping others. And when I look at my stage life, and what I loved about my stage life was I was being an impactful communicator. And my passion was the fact that people got up and clapped for themselves. I had helped them to get the value that they needed. And for me, that was like the eureka moment where, and I think about this for other musicians as well who have to transition or are in the process of transitioning or don't know if they need to transition, but maybe they need to, or they're 10 years past that transition and are still like, what am I doing? Because it took me nine years, nine years after saying to myself that I'm not going to be a full-time performer to get through all of this work, to have that eureka moment where I figured out my life is all about other people and helping other people and being a catalyst for that help not necessarily doing it all for them, but being available for them to ask those questions, to not judge them, to listen, and to have the rest of my life, which has been very storied and along many different paths, have that all come into play when they're asking me good questions, because I have a lot to pull from. I didn't just go to business school and just become a private wealth manager. I've done so many different things in such a different arc with my life that I have all of these places to pull experience from. And at the end of the day, people don't want necessarily your advice based on things you've never felt. They wanna know that you felt what they felt and regardless of the experience you've had, that you've had that experience 
and you can relate whether it's positive or negative. It's just the matter that you've had that experience. So when I look at all this, I'm an impactful communicator with a passion for helping others. That's the elevator talk. When someone says, hey, what do you do? It's not, I mean, it is, I'm with Quadrant Private Wealth and I'm Private Wealth Manager. But the reality is my beginning is I'm an impactful communicator with a passion for helping others. And I just happen to do that as a Private Wealth Manager. And it has been extraordinary. I'm not necessarily ever selling. I am just having conversations and all I want to do with my life is have more conversations. Give me a conversation, I'll have it. Uh, it's just, it's liberating to find out that that's actually the person you are and leave behind the baggage from the person you thought you were. And finally, I'll wrap that up with, this all is easy for me. When I say I'm an impactful communicator with a passion for helping others, it's not that I struggle to be that person and that's who I should be. It's that's who I am on a day-by-day -day basis and that comes easy to me. And so that's the extraordinary finding here. I no longer have to wake up and meditate. I could if I want to. I no longer have to wake up and walk to work. I could if I wanted to. Five-minute journal, could if I wanted to. I know what I'm supposed to be doing now. And I know where the right realm is for me to be doing that. So as a private wealth manager, I have these conversations all the time. I love getting into it with my clients. Unfortunately or fortunately, my clients cry with me a lot. And I think that just means that I'm communicating well with them. That's it. Like they, they're being heard. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want. We just want someone to hear us, not to assume that they know anything about us. And I really, really love what I do. And of course, I, I'm in, well involved in the arts still as well, which uh, helps me still contribute to that role. Whew, what a ride. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing all of that, Paul. And I think you were saying uh, it's, you know, in this kind of, well, what are, what's next and how do I figure it out is the work to do is always the, it's, it's, there's never an extrinsic answer to that. The answer is always, it's the work within to know, to know yourself, because when you know yourself and you have your elevator pitch, as you said, it's not just an elevator pitch, it's actually a filter. It's the pinch point of a filter and anything that comes your way in life professionally, you can now put down that filter and say, does this pass the, is it going to help me be a better impactful communicator with a passion for helping for others? And it'll either be a yes or a no. So mm -hmm. all this other, the, the 99 things that are a no, you can feel really, we can feel really good about letting those go. So this is, this is not in alignment with who I am and what I value. And that's the challenge for, for people is to be able to have a have a yay-nay a, a yay nay filter because they know themselves well enough to know, as you said, you know, I'm I'm a people, I'm a people person um, and I'm here to help them achieve their things. So yeah, it's that's really fantastic for people to hear that that's it, and it's a journey, you know, some people get on it really quick and some people don't. And it, there's a whole load of, 
you know, factors that feed into that. But the, as you were talking about, the liberation that you feel, because um, it, it, it also means that, you know, if you if you get bored at your current employer or, or the fit isn't right anymore, everything you look at it comes through that filter of, is this going to help me be a better impactful communicator with a passion for helping others? And that might be I'm going to help NASA write better copy about their education programs in space because, yes, it's going to help me to do it. So the what it is, the what becomes doesn't matter anymore because you have this to be able to apply to the what and say, sure, development, raising fund, funds for guide dogs. Yep, that's in alignment. Or this other thing, you know, helping sell cars. Actually, no, it's, you know, whatever it is. It just, it's the, it's the filter that helps you, it's, it helps you make decisions because that's what people really struggle with. Yes. And I was, a lot of the time, even as a musician, you can be in the right place, right time situations and for some musicians that makes or breaks their career and I would say that's no different in the real world even though musicians live in the real world but in the other real world that's no different and I got extraordinarily lucky that the currency risk manager that I was with on the seventh floor of the Richardson building was on the same floor as Quadrant Private Wealth and when I started there, I didn't know that I would be a people person because I was still stuck in that mindset of, oh, I'm, I'm like going to do strategy and work on strategy. I'll just take this role in the meantime to make ends meet or whatever it was. And then turns out I was a people person. And I was talking with uh, Michael Susser, who's the CEO here, many times. And we would meet on the seventh floor and he'd say, how's it going? You know, anywhere. And we had a couple of good conversations and I think that Michael could really see that it was that people person. And I still hadn't gone through that exercise and not that Michael was coming to me and saying, Paul, like you're, you're really a people person. Like you need to be doing this. Come to Quadrant Private Wealth. Like there, there was a bit of a pursuit and a bit of me pursuing them as well. And at the end of the day, when I figured that out, it made so much sense. And we have been a good fit for each other, I believe the Quadrant Private Wealth fit with what Quadrant Private Wealth is all about and the Paul Brook Weens fit and what Paul Brook Weens is all about. The tools that I have at my disposal are, are extraordinary. And so I can just have those conversations and know that I can help, that I have enough in that tool chest, not just me personally, but with what I do at Quadrant Private Wealth, that there is so much I can do for the people that choose, choose to engage me. And it's that it's that different distinction, Paul, between client, satis, client service and client satisfaction because you can't make people satisfied all the time, but you can be of service. And I think where this also ties to is this greater notion of, you know, you're talking about meditating and journaling is um, I want to be worthy of, I want to be, and, and it's kind of maybe also feeding back to growing up in a Mennonite household and a spiritual household is I want to be worthy, but I, how do I be worthy of your time? And you did that. You were saying that summer school you went to, you were, though the phrase you used was, I was extraordinarily well prepared. So I want to be worthy of this opportunity. 
And now it's, I want to be worthy of my client's time. I can't solve their problems. I can't, I can't solve all the problems. I can't meet all the needs. But being, and what does that look like? Being worthy of their time means being open and available, staying curious, asking good questions and being honest. So this is what this is what you were doing in the same thing with your responsibility to the colleagues in the summer school and and your performance um, you know uh, as, as a performer was taking responsibility for being worthy of their time and that, that that's coming through in the conversation as well. Is that yeah. does this tie does this kind of tie together? Do you think it's bingo? Uh, I I want them to feel like every conversation can be impactful. Now, it's not always going to be like that. That's a lofty goal. And it's really difficult to put every conversation on that pedestal. But it doesn't mean that the overarching thought about the process and me learning and me preparing for the performance and then going and performing, it doesn't mean that that arc isn't there. That arc always remains. And even though the fit wasn't there to be a badminton player and the fit wasn't there to be a professional opera singer and the fit wasn't there to be a professional commercial banker, I learned so much through all those roles that really got me to where I am. So it's another one of those items about struggle. You need to go through that struggle. You need to find yourself because the struggle is worth it as well. And it will add to your tool chest at the end of the day. You've hit on a really interesting point there, Paul, because I think, and this may be a little bit different for your journey because you have talked um, so much about being um, not afraid to make change. Uh, and maybe that, again, comes from, you know, there's a greater, there's, there's, there's from your spiritual background that there's, there's greater purpose beyond like so I have I have faith that I have belief um, so I can be unafraid but that what happens with musicians who have a who come sort of straight through the conservatory model is the decision making is mostly stripped away from them most of the time and again I'm making very gross generalizations so they actually don't struggle very much and they generally come from a family of means who've been able to afford the privilege of um, the gift of music education. And so they actually, beyond playing the clarinet in the practice room and dealing with a tricky orchestral excerpt, they don't actually generally have to struggle very much. And so this is what happens when they get out. They hit struggle town and they have no experience of discomfort and confusion and uncertainty and it freaks them the hell out. Can you, can you, is this where I, you were? I, I can totally relate. Like I, I come from a very loving household and they were able to support me somewhat financially uh, throughout my entire life. And there, that is a very poignant point because again, you just don't realize what the real world is all about. Being a student is a luxury. And it is incredibly, I don't want to say this because it's going to sound crass, but it's easy. Whole boy is going to university easy. And I think you just, you won't know that until you have the real world experience. So you can, you can have those discussions in your music school where 
look at the person on your left and look at the person on your right and only one of you is going to make it. You can do all that. And unless the person is 40 years old sitting in that room and goes, ah, they're dang right. Unless you're that person at the age of 20, you're the person that's going to make it. You just don't know. So real world experience is necessary. Uh, perhaps if you do have the ability to have someone helping you out financially to pursue those goals of being a musician, perhaps it hits home a bit more, the struggle once you're done music school and you just don't know what to do with your life. At, at the end of the day, um, yeah, you just don't know until you're out. Um, one of the Paul, one of the things I've just finished yesterday teaching. It's the uh, it's the end of our academic year, and I, I teach um, a couple of subjects at the conservatory here. And I'm not even going to bother telling you what the subject content is. The entire learning design of the of the twenty or twelve classes of two hours each is designed to normalize them being confused, uncomfortable to not have enough information, to have to make decisions quickly with not the right amount of data, um, to, to be frustrated, to fail. They fail a lot. Um, and that's actually what their time <laughs> with men, and we did the reflection yesterday, okay, like we had a look at the, the, the arc of the two subjects across two semesters, and, and they all said, I've never been more confused and frustrated and I've never been happier about it. And they said, you know, in the moment, because it's this difficult thing of um, that they, again, that you experience in the working world that maybe as a student of working with people who have very high expectations of you, but are also really kind and invested in you being okay in the confusion. And that they all commented that that was, that was really a new experience for them. And I think um, yeah, I mean, that's something I'm really proud of in my teaching is it's just, and I'm really explicit with them. I say, you're going to be confused and frustrated and I'm going to push you to make decisions when you don't have enough time and it's deliberately imperfect, but this is practice of doing this. Uh, and it's you're going to be, I, I know that in two or three years' time, because they all come back and say, oh, my gosh, it was like the subject that changed me as a person. <laughs> um, but I said, it's going to be uncomfortable and if you, you and it, exactly as you said, the struggle will be worth it. And I'm here to be with you through the confusion, but this is what it is. And if you don't want to be uncomfortable, you're welcome to make a decision to opt out and go do, you know, pop choir, something that's easy, but that is not going to help you. And the cost of avoiding the discomfort is not, is when you get out of here and it is uncomfortable and confusing is you, it's going to, you won't, you're gonna it'll be even harder avoiding it avoiding it makes it harder in the long run the wall that performers can put up between them and reality is quite shocking and so the fact that you're doing that is very good and I wouldn't be surprised if you have students that just refuse to attend a class like that because they just don't think they need it and the reality is every single musician that is going through a program should be a part of those conversations. I, I do say to them, look, if you don't, if this is not, I'm really explicit about why we, why it's necessary for them to experience this and the cost of avoiding it. 
so that they're making an informed decision about both those two things. Um, and, and those that do opt out, I actually always follow up with them individually and say, look, could we, can we find 20 minutes? I'd really like to hear what the challenge in this is for you. Um, and, and often it's around, oh, I don't want to fail in front of my friends. I don't want to look like a failure in front of others. And that, that's a whole other that's a whole nother can of words to get into. Um, Paul, it's been such a delight. Thank you so much for sharing the journey. And I, I, the, the, the struggle is worth it is going to be the tagline of this conversation because it's just been, a, it's been an amazing um, gift for you to be so open with us about, about the struggle um, and about the search to find. It's really the search to find yourself, right? Yes, very welcome. And I think that if people in general could be more open with themselves and more transparent with others, we live in a much more empathetic world and these struggles wouldn't be as necessary. And I'm very happy in the place I am now and I'm very happy with my life and I'm glad I went through all those struggles to get there. And because without them, I wouldn't be here. Mm. That's a very timely reminder for all of us right now about, uh, and, and also the, the, the struggle, it doesn't last forever. There, it's like a tunnel. There, there is a point at which you will come out the other side and things will be different. So just also for anyone who's really struggling right now to know that, as you said, it took a while, um, but there will come a point where you're not where you are right now and that's okay. Yeah. Keep searching. Um, yeah, keep searching. I'll put links to stuff in the show notes. Paul, thanks so much. It's been an absolute gift today. Thanks, Susan. Hey, thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please help me share these stories by sharing this with others. You can post about it on your socials, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or you can leave me a rating and a review about this podcast. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Notable Values. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.